My name is Jay. I'm the pastor here. Welcome to Cultivate. So glad to have you here. So this is uh, Advent Conspiracy, and uh, it's a very kind of dubious term. What is it that we mean by Advent Conspiracy? Um, that term is really a, uh, a, a, a term that has been used by a number of different churches around the country and even now internationally who are trying to live out a different story this Christmas season. And not just this Christmas season, but I think it started right around 2005, 2006. And more and more churches every year have added into that number uh, to, to try and live out a different story this Christmas. Because a lot of us are becoming more and more uncomfortable with the story that's being told each Christmas season. It's a story that's being told that, that says to us that consumption is the thing that's most important in the holiday season. And so we buy and we purchase and we shop and we spend and we expend ourselves and our energy over things that may not matter as much as we think they do because oftentimes we get through the holiday season and we collapse because we're so exhausted and we're so in debt from what we've done through the months of November and December. So Advent Conspiracy is a way for us to say, what if we lived a different story? What if we chose a different path as the church, and said to the world, Christmas, no, 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 isn't about overconsumption and debt and expending ourselves and maxing out our credit cards. What if it is really about Jesus and worshiping Him fully, spending less so that we can give more and then love all in the name of Jesus? And so what we're going to be talking about throughout this four-part series that starts today and ends on Christmas Eve Is that process, worship fully, spend less, give more, and love all. And so today we're starting that process by saying, what does it look like to worship fully? So how many of you uh, love the holiday season? You've been looking forward to this thing since like August. Come on, show me your hands. How many? (laughs) You guys, you're not the Grinches, right? You are the people that love, love, love the holiday season. I really love it too. And I look forward to it most of the year. It always seems now like it comes faster than it ever did before. And, and so suddenly it is here and uh, we are reacting to it. How many of you, though, being brutally honest, are like Scrooge and you're like, I just, I want to get through it. It's, it's not the most fun time of year. Come on, raise them high. The first step is acknowledging you have a problem. Yes? As a kid, I, I always looked forward to Christmas. I, I'm just, part of that is just God's blessing in my life, and I was part of a great family that uh, really made that time valuable, and it was really a time of gathering and friendship and love uh, and guest presence, but it was, it was always a great time for me growing up and uh, for my little sister and for our extended family. And the thing that I loved most about Christmas, the day that I loved and time that I loved most, uh, was actually Christmas Eve. It wasn't so much Christmas Day. Because Christmas Eve, we would all gather with our extended family at my grandparents' house. And it, they didn't have a big house or anything, so we'd all pile in. And my dad had, um, had five siblings. So you get an idea, and all of them had, had kids of some form or another. And we're all, you know, packed into the house and and just having a great time. Everybody, anybody ever hear of uh, the seven fishes for, uh, for Christmas Eve? Yes. Well, we aren't Italian. We're French, and so we had the seven pizzas. So we didn't, 
Nobody really wanted to spend the time kind of making all the fishes, so we would order out, uh, usually from the, the only place that was open at that point, which was probably Domino's or something. And uh, yeah, we could go Chinese food too, but not everybody liked the Chinese food, so, so we had the seven pizzas to, to feed our family. But it was always a great time for, for me because it was a time of gathering with my cousins, uh, who I didn't always see throughout the year, and we would catch up, and we'd play games, and we would do fun things, and then we'd all gather around in the living room, right, and, and, uh, and share presents, and my grandfather would usually break out the harmonica and play Christmas carols on his harmonica. Just fantastic. We actually video recorded one of those, those Christmas Eves, and then the year, and a couple years after he passed away, just reliving some of those memories that we had together. Just a phenomenal time. Um, time of family and, and sharing. And then as I grew up, um, I, I became a Christian at, at 21 years of age. And uh, so that experience brought on a whole new life for Christmas. And Christmas had still remained a very much a family-type event, very much sharing and giving um, and, and loving one another. But it took on this whole new element. It was the first year that I realized just the depth of what happened on that Christmas day and how important, how, how much th- that unique experience just shapes life. It was the first time that I experienced a Christmas actually knowing the Savior personally who had come into the world. And so Christmas took on a whole new dimension for me. And it became an experience of worship. And I remember the very first Christmas morning after coming to faith in Christ and waking up that morning. And, and it was, normally I'd wake up early in order to go downstairs and, and see what was under the Christmas tree. And I remember waking up early that morning and rolling out of my bed and pulling out my Bible and reading the Christmas story and going, thank you, God, thank you so much for what you've done for me and how you've come into this world in the form of your son to save those who were lost and far from you. It, it was just... A, a brand new experience unlike anything that I'd ever had before. And it's continued to be that type of experience for me. But as time has gone on since I was 21 and now 10 years now being a Christian, so this is my 10th Christmas celebration as knowing Jesus, I've been a little bit conflicted. Because while it has remained an event that's primarily focused on worship, there's another element to it also. A lot of my experience, and this probably has been your experience too, is focused around the idea of getting and receiving gifts. And as much as we like to give in the holiday spirit, we also, if I'm being honest, like to receive too, don't we? I mean, it is a time of receiving. How many of us would be comfortable if it were only a time of giving and not receiving? I would be a little disappointed, to be very honest with you. I would be just a little bit disappointed if Christmas was only about giving and not receiving. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with receiving, um, but Christmas always seems like it should be fulfilling, and yet January comes so fast, and it just doesn't seem like I got what I should have out of the Christmas season. (laughs) Some of you are thinking gifts, and I wasn't exactly talking about that. But See, we say that Christmas is all about Jesus, right? That he is the reason for the season. 
But is he the object of our worship when it comes to this time of year? That's really what I want us to wrestle with this morning. And, and here's kind of the test. Let's say like people from outer space came down and visited your house on Christmas Day. So they're looking in the windows. They have no idea what this Christmas thing is about. But they peer into your life and they watch you on Christmas morning. What is it that they gather from watching you as to what's important in your life? What do they observe when they see you? What impression do they get in terms of what's important during the holiday season? I think that gives us a pretty good place to start. The thing that's so easy to forget about this time of year is that Christmas is primarily a season of worship. And so what I'd like to do is actually to start by defining what that means, because it's sort of a fuzzy term. It's a term that we think of, that we think we know the definition of, and yet if we just got our minds around maybe what the term worship means, it might change the way we see things. And so let's, let's do that. What does the word worship mean? It means to give worth, weight, or value to something. It means to desire and to desire something. So in other words, we are giving value to something. And to be honest, we are created to worship. All of us are, not just the religious folks. And then we have the secular folks over here who don't worship. All of us worship something because all of us give value to something in our lives. And so that may be family, that may be God, that may be possessions, that may be career, that may be status. All of us give worship to something. We give weight, we give value to something, and that something becomes what we desire. Worship is all about desire. And sometimes we think worship is all about singing, but singing is just the expression of a heart that is already worshiping. Worship is all about desire. So what I'd like to do is actually to look at uh, some stories. These are going to be some very familiar stories to us, but we're going to look at some of the very first stories around the Christmas story to see what it looks like to give worship. And so we're, we're going to look at different people in their settings and how the Christmas experience resulted in worshiping fully for them. And so these are things that you can do even if you're a terrible singer, right? You don't have to be a great singer in order to worship. But I want to paint for us four portraits of worship surrounding this story. And I think what that will do is help us to understand what it means to worship fully this holiday season. The first one is Mary. Everybody know Mary? She's kind of important to the story, right? Um, It's hard to get around the Christmas story without looking at the life of Mary. Let me give you some background on her. She is a teenage girl living in a very poor corner of a very mighty society called the Roman Empire. She's living in this backwoods, kind of dusty area of the world, poor teenage girl, unwed, who discovers that she is pregnant. She is engaged to be married, right, to a poor carpenter named Joseph. This is not a story of power, of influence. She, at this point, doesn't seem to be favored by anyone. 
And yet the story begins with her. And she is chosen. She is given an invitation to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Now that sounds all well and good, right? But imagine you're a teenage girl and you discover you're pregnant and the society that you live in would like nothing more than to stone you for being pregnant and unwed. That's a problem, right? (laughs) Think of yourselves at that point in time. You have dreams of the way that your life is going to work out. You have goals that you'd like to attain for yourself. And none of those goals are getting pregnant before you're married. To some of This is a very familiar story, right? And yet this is the story that God enters the world into. Very peculiar. Instead of protesting, though, Mary does something incredibly different. She composes a song of devotion to our Lord and to her Lord. And it's found in Luke 1. And she says this, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Rather than seeing the predicament that she's in as a curse, she sees it as an enormous blessing. That God has, in his timing, in his grace, in his providence, shown up and chosen her to be part of his story. She rejoices in the goodness of God and and, and recognizes his faithfulness to the world because she understands that she is part of something much greater than herself. Another way to put that would be that she decides to worship the giver instead of the gift. She understands that what she's been given is an enormous gift, and yet rather than be content with worshiping the gift, she directs her worship to the giver. She values the giver above all else. So how can you and I sort of sing a different song this year? One that really taps into the heart of God and stands up for the least of these, the Marys and the Josephs in our world, rather than standing up for the cheapest bargains. See, worship is all about giving something fully to the giver rather than giving weight to the gifts. And sometimes, let me say oftentimes, as a society, we completely forget the giver. And we worship only the gifts. I think Mary would have a lot to teach us about the way that we worship by how she acknowledges what's really important in this season. How about Joseph, right? Joseph in this story, he sounds like a great guy, but he's got a real problem, right? He is engaged to someone who he's not married to yet and who's pregnant. This is a real issue for Joseph. Because basically in that society, he has one of three options at that point. And he kind of entertains each of them. The first one is that it's sort of the normal way of the world. He can expose Mary for what she is. 
he can say to, the, to society, look, I, I didn't sleep with her. She's obviously pregnant. Um, I, I, I have nothing to do with this. I'm removing myself from the situation. And in all likelihood, Mary would be stoned to death. Joseph's got no more problems, right? No more obligations. I'm done with the whole thing. That's one of his options. Another one of his options is to say, no, I'm going to do this silently. I'm going to go under the radar, so to speak, and I'm going to leave her silently and hope, really, that she doesn't get found out by the authorities. Maybe she can live a quiet life and go back to her family, and then I can go on to my deal and do my thing, but I'm going to remove myself from the situation anyway. That's another one of Joseph's options. The third option, and you need to see this as the most unlikely option, is that he stays. He stays. That in and of itself is an amazing feat. Rather than shirk his responsibilities and go and do something else, Joseph stays. And he understands that that act of staying is exactly what God's will is because God comes to him in the form of an angel and says something very specific. The angel says this to him in Matthew 1, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph's offering of worship that Christmas morning was an offering to obey God, even though it meant that his reputation would be utterly ruined. Think of an upstanding young man in society, and he chooses to make his reputation low in order to give worship to God by staying in that union with Mary. Are you willing to worship God fully, not just by singing once a week until Christmas, but by living a different story, even if that meant that your friends and your family and your coworkers would misunderstand what you do and maybe even question your sanity? It has everything to do with reputation. Joseph's call to worship is one that considers the the relationship with God more important than his own reputation. And so he chooses to live a different story than the one the society would have him live out for himself. My guess is that created quite a few enemies for him. But like Joseph, when we act in obedience to God's invitation, despite even the social cost, what we do is we help God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The very thing that Jesus prayed for us to do. How about the shepherds? Let's look at those guys. Um, Shepherd sounds really neat, like a, a great occupation, right? You kind of hang out in the fields with some sheep all the time, get some fresh air, see the countryside, not much to worry about, right, except for when you have to shear them and go into the marketplace. You might smell a little bad, 
right? But other than that, not, not a whole lot to worry about. Here, here's the thing about shepherds, though. They were the outcasts of society. They were the people who weren't considered good enough to have a normal job within the town, and so they were cast out of the town and say, you go and spend some time with sheep because we don't think you're worthy of being in our society. They were shuddered in every way and told, go away, we don't want you here. They were the outcasts. They were the ones who were pushed to the margins of society. Guess who the Christmas story begins with? God chooses to announce the birth of his son, not to people in the center of society, but to those who have been cast out to the margins to live a different life. Their testimony wasn't even allowed in court. That's how subhuman they were considered. And yet God says to them, good news has come into the world, and I am announcing it through you guys. Very, very amazing that God would choose that course of action. And listen to what they do. After the the angel announces the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem to those guys, here's what happens in Luke 2. It says, So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. These guys weren't allowed to give their testimony in court, and God chooses them to be the ones that announce the testimony of God's new activity in the world. And you know it's true because people are amazed, and they actually start believing that something new has come into the world. What those guys tell me is that worship involves a response. It involves leaving the daily grind of our responsibilities and actually pausing long enough to look upon the Savior of the world who is Christ the Lord. I mean, the sheep aren't going to tend themselves. You realize that, right? And so they need to leave their occupation for a time to go and push aside the cares of the world to sit at the foot of an infant child named Jesus who would be the Savior. They left that responsibility. And yet, so often for us, the Christmas season is about rushing, 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 shopping, 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 debt, debt, debt. Christmas holiday parties that I don't want to go to to mingle with coworkers I don't really like. I need to put up a Christmas tree that gives me an allergy. So (laughs) I put up Christmas decorations and then they blink and I don't want them to blink. (laughs) I was putting Christmas decorations on the house, and and I'm all about efficiency, and I I don't want to spend a lot of time putting Christmas decorations, and so I wrap all the lights around like pieces of garland, and then I go outside, and I hang the garland, and I plug it in, and two minutes later, I'm done. Right, So I've got like three or four pieces of garland. I go outside and I hang it, I hang it, I hang it, I plug them in, done. I'm, I'm all set up for Christmas. It's on a timer. I don't have to plug it in. I don't have to do anything. This year I put them all out onto the banister. I plug them in and two-thirds of them aren't lighting. <laughs> and so now I need to shop at the store to get lights that I don't want to replace to put around garland that I wish was already done so that it would 
light up my house on Christmas because that's what you do on Christmas. Here's the thing, though. If we spend our time rushing, 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 what we end up inevitably doing is missing out on the most important invitation you and I will ever, ever, ever receive. To sit and consider the wonders of God's love found only in the birth of his son into the world. So, how might you incorporate, let me ask you this, how might you incorporate this mentality into your calendar between now and Christmas? You have 21 days from now until Christmas to incorporate a sense of worship where time is spent in worship. How is that incorporated into your calendar? You schedule time for office parties. You schedule time to put lights on the house. You schedule time to wrap Christmas presents and to buy those presents. Where is the pausing to spend time with the one who's actually born into this world to give us the Christmas season? Or is it? It's a very important question for us to ask. All right, last one is the wise men. These guys were magi or wise men. They were scholars and astrologers who traveled all the way from a land called Persia, very, very far away. They noticed something changing in the star pattern, which they were monitoring, and they began this journey to Jerusalem looking for the one that their ancient text had foretold was coming into the world. And they make a little bit of a pit stop. So they go to Jerusalem, and they get an audience with the king of the day. His name was Herod. Herod isn't such a great guy in the story, if you read it for yourself. In fact, he wants nothing more than for all of Judea to worship him rather than this coming king. And yet he knows that one day a king is coming who will replace him. And Herod will do everything within his power to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so these wise men come and they get an audience with the king and they say, we've looked at the stars, we think he's coming, do you know where he is? And Herod says, no, I don't know, but if you find him, let me go so I can worship him. It's one of the most sarcastic lines in the entire Bible because what Herod would love, nothing more, is to see that baby put out of its life so that there's no competition. And so they leave, and they end up finding the baby. And it says this in Matthew 2, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented with him gifts of gold and incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country another way. See, we often think of these guys as bringing really ex- expensive gifts, right? They're like the, the, the Cartier of their day. They're, they're bringing Tiffany, you know, to, to, uh, to baby Jesus. I think there's something even more going on because these guys, not realizing it, but in their interaction, they could have ended up giving their entire life in order to find him. Their lives were at risk. My guess is if they had gone back to Herod, he would have killed them immediately and then gone and found the baby and killed him too. They were risking their lives in order to give worship to this newborn king. 
So it begs the question, why would people travel so far and risk so much and give so much so that they could just bow down and give these gifts to a little infant in a manger in this backwater place named Bethlehem? My guess is is because they understood the value of the gift that was being given in return. And nothing they could give that first Christmas morning could even compare to the gift that they were receiving into the world. The one who would take away the sins of God's people and give them new life in him. They understood the value of that gift. And so let me ask you this morning, do you see how valuable this gift is? Do you see it? Because if you see it, then it outweighs all the other stuff that we tend to focus our time and our attention and our energy and our finances on every single Christmas season. Do you see how valuable this other gift is that cannot be purchased? It can only be given, and yet it's given freely to everyone. The only thing that it costs in return is worship. And yet worship itself is costly, is it not? It costs Mary her entire life, her dreams and her goals. It costs Joseph his reputation as an upstanding citizen in society. It costs the shepherd some of their occupation to be able to go and experience this newborn king. And it almost costs the wise men their very lives. Worship always costs us something. So, let me ask, what might happen if we worshipped God like the people of this story? What transformation might occur as we sang praises to our God, as we paused and even traveled great distance at our own personal expense in order to love Jesus with our time and our energy and our expenses? What, what could occur Rick, uh, Rick McKinley, who's the, one of the authors of the book named Advent Conspiracy, from which we take the title of this series, says this, As followers of Jesus, our options are clear. We can either inhabit the story of a corrupt world, or we can enter the story of God through Christ. We can choose the for- if we choose the former, we need not change anything. Christmas and the rest of our lives will look very much the same way as it does now. But if we choose to enter the story of God, we choose to enter the greatest story ever, the story that changes everything. I think I realized at some point in time in the 10 years that I've known Jesus that something was off. And I think that thing that was off is that on Sundays I was singing one story and the rest of my life I was living a different one at least during the Christmas season. What would it look like to bring those two stories together and to live them as one? That is what the Advent conspiracy is all about. And what it takes is worship and worshiping fully. So take a look at this. Our hearts are formed by what we worship. 
our attitudes, our affections, the things we give our time to, all of our life gets formed by what we worship. Every year on Black Friday, people get up at 5.30 in the morning. Hundreds and hundreds of people get up and they stand in line for hours and hours to get the best deals on stuff. That's a worship event. People are excited to get there and they give themselves to it. And that's a Christmas worship event. I remember hearing of a man who was uh, shot fighting with another man over a PlayStation 3 for his son. That's a love story. It's a weird love story, but it's truly a love story. And his love was expressed in what he worshiped, getting a game for his son. And yet there's this other story, and this really is the story that is the church's to tell. It's the story of Jesus Christ coming into the world to bring salvation and a new humanity to all people. That's a story that isn't told with cheap gifts. It's not a story that is told at malls. It's the church's story, it's our story to tell, and we're not telling it very well. And really the Advent conspiracy is an opportunity and an invitation for us to worship Jesus fully. So how are you doing at telling the story of Christmas in the way that you participate in the holiday season? That, that has been a very, very convicting question for me recently. And Mandy and I have been looking at the way that we spend. We've been looking at the kinds of things that we're doing in the holiday season because we want to be able to worship fully this year, maybe in a way that we haven't been able to experience in years past. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell a different story this year. And this, this is what the Advent Conspiracy is actually all about. It is about worshiping fully by spending less in order to give more relationally to the people that we love and the people that are around us. And then to love all in the name of Jesus because he loved us so dearly that he came to this earth to live a life and to die in our place. That's what we're challenging our church to do this year is to tell a different story. Our challenge is to intentionally spend less on the stuff that doesn't matter so that we can be freed up to spend more on the relationships that do. Because we believe, we think that in doing that, we will actually love Jesus more and end up worshiping him more fully this holiday season. And then what if we used some of the money that we saved from not buying all that stuff 
and used it to love some of the poorest of the poor in the name of Jesus who gave everything for us. Do you think that would tell a different story this year? I think it would be a radical story. One that speaks to the very heart of God in the Christmas season. And so let me tell you about Sarah. And uh, did everybody get one of these boxes? Can you take those, those out now and check them out a little bit? My wife Mandy spent a lot of hard work on, uh, on putting these together, so I thank her for uh, staying up and doing that. Um, Sarah is, uh, is from Haiti, and a couple weeks ago I announced that, uh, that our global partnership for Cultivate Church was going to be investing in Haiti. And Haiti, you know, sounds like a, a place in need, but let me kind of localize it down to the level of, of just one little girl. Um, Sarah, like many of the people who grow up in Haiti, lives on less than $2 a day. Less than $2 a day. Um, she is from agricultural area outside of Port-au-Prince in Haiti. Um, her family has little to no access to clean drinking water. And so what happens is her mother and, and her, she, they travel, they walk by foot with jerry cans that are filthy to go to filthy streams and get water from bacteria-laden pools and then haul that water back for cleaning and drinking and using for cooking. And she spends most of her day doing that because the water isn't that close to where her village is. And because they're so poor and, and because of the earthquake that happened in Haiti, uh, and much of the attention and aid in Haiti has gone to helping rebuild the capital city, all that aid has been shrunk from the surrounding region, leaving their family with little to no support from anyone other than themselves. And because they have no support, they end up deforesting much of the area around their village to use the fire for wood, for cooking, and for building homes. And because they've deforested the area out of such need, it ends up being susceptible to mudslides and hurricanes, which just infects the water source even more and perpetuates the problem. Sarah is the poorest of the poor. You don't get any poorer than her. What if, and this is where the boxes come into play, what if each of us chose to live a different story this year? We chose to spend just a little bit less on Christmas gifts that don't matter, and then we took the remainder of what was left by not spending, and we put it in these little boxes, and then we brought these little boxes back on Christmas Eve and collected them all together and said to Sarah and her village, this is our offering to Jesus. We choose to love him and to love you in his name because we worship him. That tells a different story, does it not? So maybe you choose to spend $15 instead of 30 on a sweater, and you put the extra 15 in here. Maybe instead of getting five Xbox games, you get four, and you take that extra $50 and you put it in here. 
what kind of ways, and I'm going to leave the dreaming to you, could you spend less in order to give more so that people like Sarah could have clean water, access to education, and medical supplies to change the direction of her life and the life of the people in her village? That gets closer to the Christmas story. And that's the story that I want to tell this year. Imagine what could happen if Cultivate chose to tell a different story. That rather than just subscribing to the story of consumerism that pervades our Christmas season, if we chose a different path, we chose to love people in the name of Jesus by using the gifts that God gave us, none of what we collect through these boxes on Christmas Eve will go to Cultivate Church. Every single penny of it will go to our partners at the 410 Bridge so that people in Haiti can have the things that they desperately need but yet aren't getting. Will you tell a different story with me this Christmas? Will you worship Jesus fully by participating in the story? That's what I'd like to know. And that's what we can pray towards. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the Christmas story. I I don't want to paint a picture that that Christmas is all about giving without receiving. We do receive and we have received. And so we acknowledge what we have received. We thank you that we have received into the world a Savior who is sufficient to save us from every sin, from every failure, from everything that we haven't lived up to in our lives. You have covered it all through the blood of your Son, Jesus. So we thank you, God, for that good and perfect gift, the gift that we needed more than any other gift. And God, as we have received that gift, let us give in kind. Let us give not so much with stuff, but with our time and with our attention and with our affections. And then let us use the things that you've blessed us with to bless the lowest of the low, the the poorest of the poor, the outcast, the shut-in, the person who is rejected and pushed to the margins of our society. God, we ask that we might bless the rejected in the name of Jesus because you came and you accepted us who were once rejected God, help us to live a different story this year. And we'll be sure to give you glory, praise, and honor, and worship as we do it. We ask for the good name of Jesus.